Good morning, everyone. So yesterday I realized there was a divide between people athletically. (laughs) Two people stood out on the volleyball court, field, whatever you call it. There was one man named Eddie. Every time he served, there was pure fire coming straight from that ball. A lot of us were burned. There was another guy named Gabriel. First time he comes in, he hits the ball, hits the net. The whole thing goes down. (laughs) There are things that divide people. On a serious note, we know that a lot of things that divide us have to do with race, gender, politics. But today we get to hear a story of how Jesus crossed those barriers to introduce someone to himself. See, the problem of sin separating us from God, the problem of sin dividing us from God, is way more important than the separation that we have here on earth, be it race, be it politics, or whatever. The division between people and God because of sin and because of his holiness is so much infinitely greater than those small divisions that we have here on earth that somehow sometimes seem very significant. So today, I want to pray for us that we be able to hear how Jesus witnessed to someone who at that time in his life would have been very different from him. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, we gather because we want to be your witnesses. Lord, we want to tell people what you've done for us, Lord, what you do. Lord, please inspire us. Please teach us this morning how to be a witness for you. We love you, God. We need your guidance today and every day. In your name, amen. What if I told you there's a story in the Bible where Jesus legitimately, one-on-one, is telling someone about himself? That would be a great model. That would be a great demonstration to look at. A lot of times we say, we're listening to a sermon, but what do I do tomorrow? Or what do I do three hours from now when I'm outside in the neighborhood? Or mowing the lawn or doing something like that. We actually get a one-on-one inside scoop into what Jesus did one-on-one with someone who did not know him. So this is a really, really cool passage. So please turn your Bibles with me to John 4. We're going to read the story. The story is usually called The Woman at the Well. And we're going to read the story. And as I'm reading the story... I want you to look at Jesus doing his thing. I mean, Jesus just just amazing. How he turns the conversation, all the little details, anything, any verb dealing with Jesus, I want you to focus on that. So let's read this story together. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, 
How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I would not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. I love that story. It's a really good story. I want to, a lot of times we go really, really into the details of the story. I just want to highlight some major things that we can see from Jesus' model of, of, uh, of witnessing, of being a witness. Notice, first of all, that it mentions that Jesus' disciples were doing the baptizing. You see, if Jesus baptized you, you might want to put that on your nameplate, baptized by Jesus. It can be something you can brag about. We see in the Bible sometimes people would say, like, I was baptized by John. And so Jesus, in humility, said, I'm not going to do that. He's going to have his disciples do that. And that's pretty neat, isn't that, that he let his disciples do that. And I want to let you all know that some of you all right now are his disciples, and you can also baptize. You know, that's not only for pastors. The Great Commission does not have a little qualifier that says pastors only. So I do want to let you know that. So we see Jesus himself letting his uh, disciples baptize. The text also tells us in the beginning that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It was necessary. The word there is it was required to pass through Samaria. So what did Jesus do? He felt it was necessary to go to a place that most Jewish people would not even go. Did you guys know they would take the long way around, long way around? 
And if you got a nice minivan with air conditioning and a, and a, and a video that pops down for the kids, that makes sense. That's no problem. Enjoy the ride. But when you have to walk up and down a hilly area, you must really not like those people or you really felt like they were unclean or they would, they would defile you to even be around them. And so Jesus had to go through there. Sometimes you might hear people talk about, I felt like it was a divine appointment or I felt like this came from the Lord. It almost sounds a little mystical. But let me tell you, when you're a follower of God, sometimes things happen and you know you should have been there and you know it was supposed to happen. And something really great happened. Lord did something. And you realize like it was set up that way. So I don't want to sound weird today. I do want to tell you that I do believe Jesus felt it was absolutely necessary to do what he did. Let's talk about the Samaritans. What's the big divide here? What was separating? You see, the Samaritans were a a corrupted form of the Jewish people. Many of the Jews that remained after they were conquered in the northern kingdom They started to intermarry. They started to mingle. And when that happened, their worship of God suffered from what we call syncretism. And beyond syncretism, some of them just flat out stopped worshiping God and worshiped these false gods that came from the other gods, uh, that came from the gods of the people that took them over, the Assyrians. So they intermarried. They committed some of the most heinous uh, sins at that time being that the Jewish pe- Jewish people were marrying idolatrous Gentiles. This was huge. You see, for them, it was not only a Sunday thing or one day a week. This was their culture. This was their whole theocracy. They were governed by their beliefs of God. So it was huge to turn away from that and to intermingle with the people who were the total opposite. So Jesus had to go into that situation. Culturally, rabbis didn't even speak to women. Culturally, a Jewish rabbi would not have anything to do with a Samaritan. But we see that Jesus crosses those. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus was weary. We've been studying Hebrews. We've been talking about how he's a great high priest who understands. And this is a great example of that. The Bible tells us, uh, I'm sorry, the Greek tells us that this word weary to tire actually means slump. Like, he's legit tired. It's very hot. That time of day would have been about noon, and he is super, super exhausted. This woman comes to get water at that time. Now, normally, if you're coming to get water and you're a woman of that time, that was the woman's work. Men were out in the field or doing their job, and woman's work would come to go get the water for cooking and for feeding livestock and whatever you need the water for. Normally, you would go in the morning when the sun was down, and then you would take your walk, you would get it, and then you would come back. But we could tell that there was something wrong with this woman because she's going to get water at the hottest time of day. You see, guys, she was a big outcast in her society. More than that, she was an immoral woman. This is a woman been married multiple times and currently was in an adulterous relationship when Jesus met her. She also shows some ignorance in this story. She doesn't really know anything about true religion. She just kind of spouts out these phrases. Just kind of throws them out. Jesus even said to her, you don't know what you worship. He flat out told her. She is uneducated. She's also indifferent. He tries to talk to her about spiritual things, but she keeps talking about water. She just kept bringing up water, right? 
So she's kind of indifferent. She didn't understand what was going on. Jesus talks to this woman. Jesus talks to a woman that was the outcast of her society. He talks to a woman who had all these layers and layers of sin built up. Jesus talks to that woman. You see, Jesus is not a Jonah. You guys know the story of Jonah, or at least you've seen the VeggieTales movie five or six times, right? So Jonah, there was a people group that he did not like. So what did he do? When, when he was given the call to go speak to him, he was like, nope, nope. And so much so that he said, I'm going to actually go far away. So he didn't only just say no, he actually set up his life so that he wouldn't ever come near them. He went away. He went away. You see, Jesus did not do that. He did not set up his life so that he would never have to engage with the outcasts of society or the people that were real different from him. He didn't set up his life that way. He did not isolate himself away from the people that were just different. Or maybe people, most people just wouldn't want to be around. You know, the shaky people in our life, the crazy people in our family, the drunks, the, the dude who's hurt you personally when you were a kid, right? So all these people that we generally try to stay away from, we see that this woman who would be an example of that, Jesus was not a Jonah. And I'm hoping that as we hear this witness witness series that none of us would be a Jonah either, you know? Jesus cared about the division between God and people more than he cared about the division between who he was as a human and who she was as an outcast in society. So the first thing Jesus does is he condescends. He goes down. What does that mean he goes down? He's willing to talk to people who are so different. He's willing to talk to her. He's willing to do something that other people were not willing to do. What does he do right away? Pretty soon he engages with her. Where she is in her context, he asks her for water. They're at a well. Right away, he begins to then change the conversation from a physical, external, to something spiritual, internal. That's what Jesus does. Look at how he does it. He takes a casual conversation and turns it into a spiritual one. He began in the natural, and then he goes into the spiritual. Now, some of you all say, why would he start in the natural? Well, look what it says. It says, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, the natural person receives not the things of the Spirit of God. He starts there. He spoke of something she could relate to. He simply mentioned the things of God within context. What does he do after that? He begins to offer her the mercy. Let me show you what the mercy part is. In verse 10, it's pure mercy when he says, if you knew the gift of God. He starts, he starts talking about the gift of God. Notice he did not expect her to clean herself up before he gave her that peace. In her broken, messed up state, he offers her the free gift of mercy from God. If you knew him. He didn't say, if you did this, 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 and this, then you could. Nope, he said, if you knew him, where she was. That's where evangelism starts. Where people are, that's where it starts. Whenever you hear someone say, well, let me get my, fix, my life fixed up and then I'll come. 
You stop them and say, that's not how it works with God. He takes you just like this, like right now. You know what I mean? You don't have to come here. You don't have to do this. He takes you right where you are. So Jesus found a common point and then gave her the reality of offering a sinner salvation without any regard of her morality. He offered it right away. Free gift, if you would ask him. He's telling her, you could change right now. God could change you right now, 180. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus continues and he says, he, he, uh, he goes with this. He says, she keeps talking about water, but even when she's still thinking about literal water, what does he keep doing? He keeps bringing it back to the spiritual. We just keeps doing. Do you guys know that people literally are trained to know how to fend off witnesses? Witnesses of God, witnesses of trying to sell you insurance, witnesses of trying to sell you. We all have defenses and people know exactly what to say to Christians. One of the best answers to say, all right, just give me the information. I'll be there on Sunday. Not, you know, they're not going, they're not coming, right? Uh, everyone knows how to kind of say a couple words that make us think, all right, I did my piece and I'm done. But Jesus is dogged. He keeps coming back to it. He keeps coming back to it. And he does this by telling her about eternal life, another spiritual thing. Not eternal life by this special water. He doesn't let her get away with special water. She's thinking, I'm going to get this special water. I don't have to come to the well anymore. But he's like, no, that's not good enough. I'm not trying to just improve your life in your condition. I'm trying to change your whole condition. In verse 16, he does something very brave, something that is really tough. He addresses her sin. Yup, he did that. Did you see how he caught her in the lie? And he even tells her, you're quite right. You don't have a husband. You see, she was in a relationship where she was living with someone who was not her husband. And I want to say today he called that, he did not call that a marriage. He did not call that a marriage. He called that adultery. He busted her out. When she hears all of this, she realizes he's a prophet. Do you notice what she does? She does what a lot of not yet believers do. do. You know what she does? She She starts talking about, what do I need to do? Or where do I need to go? Because a lot of people think a relationship with God is about doing certain things to reach them or going to certain places. So she starts saying, well, do we go here? Do we go there? What do I do? And what does Jesus tell her? He tells her true worship is right here. The one speaking to you, me. Jesus points to himself. He explains that true worship isn't about where you do it or where you go. We can meet upstairs. We can meet here. We can meet on the lawn, right? True worship has nothing to do with location necessarily. He explains that true worship is having a relationship with God who is the truth and who is the spirit. Therefore, that can be anywhere. Jesus points to himself. Then he reveals himself to her. And he says the I am statement. Do you realize that he didn't say this in Jerusalem? He didn't say this to the rabbis. He said that he doesn't often call himself the Messiah flat out. But he actually reveals himself to her as that. This woman. Pretty amazing. Now, 
I titled this Two Witnesses at the Well. Now, you got Jesus, the ultimate example. But I want to tell you there was another witness at the well. Because after this conversation with Jesus, we find another evangelist or witness that's pretty amazing herself. So I want to give her her swag alert. And let's read John 4, 27 to 29, because she is amazing as well. John 4, 27 to 29. It says, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Look at those key verbs. She left. She went and she said, what do I do on the Tuesday? You need to leave, you need to go, and you need to say. Okay? Notice that Jesus himself went somewhere and he said something. There is a big theory about uh, living out your witness and that being enough, just being like a solid, good believer, and that people are just going to magically be like, you are so different than all of us. Let me speak to you. Now, there's a piece to that, but I want to let you know that many times when Jesus was witnessing, he actually used words. So why would we ever think of using a strategy unlike Jesus? He did the visible. You can see his witness, but he also was very audible. He spoke. And what does she do? She speaks. Some of y'all say, but she she didn't have all this knowledge. What did she speak about? Well, she went and told everything she knew. Whatever she knew, that's what she told. There was a pastor's wife that we visited early on in our marriage, Diana and I, and there was a a phrase she would always say. She would, uh, we were going to sit in the back, and she wanted to sit with our daughter, and she said, scoot over, you're hogging up the place. She would always say this word, hogging up the place. And then she was in church, and she mentioned something, and she said, Some of you all are spiritual hogs. You just get all this knowledge and you keep it. You need to share it. You need to stop hogging up all that knowledge. So whatever you know, that's what you share. Whatever you learned that week, that's what you share. Whatever you read this morning, that's what you share. She took whatever she knew and she shared that. She also told her story. He told me everything about my life. She told her story. We call that a testimony. What does a witness do? They give testimony. Do you have your short, quick, you know, BB gun testimony? Do you have your longer one? Do you have your shotgun one where someone, they're going to have to die because you're going to be with them for 40 minutes testimony? You catch them in the corner at a party, right? So you got to have different versions of that testimony. And she had that. She came and she just told it. And what does she do? She didn't point them to herself. She said, it's this guy. It's this guy. It's this thing I know about. It's this prophet. Could he be the one? She points them to Jesus. What's the outcome of this? Let's drop down to verses 39 to 42 where Aaron read for us. Let's read this. You're going to realize she is a legitimate beast. The Bible says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So you see, she, someone says, well, what do you say? Well, it looks like the magic phrase is, he told, he told me all that I ever did. You know, there is no magic phrase. That's what I'm trying to tell you. She just came and told what she knew. And I bet she was super passionate. And I bet she was super distraught about how Jesus had impacted her. And she just shared raw emotion, raw joy, raw excitement about what had happened to her. People believed her. They believed her. Now some of you will say, why would they believe her? That's worldly thinking, guys. When God empowers you, people will believe you. People will believe you. I think a lot of us, when it comes to being a witness, we don't think people will believe us or people will respond. You won't find that in the Bible. People do respond to some of the most unlikeliest characters. They do. And some of the most bogus people. Think about Paul. In our society, with some of the things that Paul does, some people might even label him or might have labeled him the craziest word of them all, a terrorist. Think about what he did. He went into people's homes and snatched them up. So even a terrorist responds in a sense. Terrorist might be too strong of a word, but some people might use that. She pointed them to Jesus, and they went to him. She pointed them to Jesus, and they went to him. More believed when they actually met Jesus himself. Do you know that sometimes the greatest evangelists are the people or the greatest witnesses are the people who led one who did, who then led a bunch of others? Like the person who led Louis Palau to the Lord, like he, he going down with a lot. Like he did a great job. The person who led Billy Graham, he's doing well. You know what I mean? So you have to think about it in a more holistic way. You might minister or witness to somebody who then ministers to many more. And in that way, you have extensions way, way out. So in closing, how should we respond to Jesus' example? How should we respond to the example of the woman at the well? Some of this is repetitive, but I feel it needs to be. Notice that Jesus did something and felt he had to do something, even though he was tired. Some of us, all the circumstances need to be set up for you, for you to do something. That's not how it was with Jesus. That's not how it was with Jesus. Some of y'all say, well, they don't have the program. Did you see Jesus go through the program? Jesus is the program. Jesus is the program. Well, I heard this other place has a program for witnessing. We got one too. Here it is. Right here. You learn something, go tell people about it. Some of us say, that sounds real simple. What did you just read? He was at a well, he's talking to people. If you make it super crazy complicated, then you're going to be less likely to do it. We're talking about talking to people and sharing your life. Someone comes to you today, what did you do? Hey, what, you know, people always ask, how was your day? What did you do? You just tell them. I was there this morning, we were learning about this. 
You just talk. You just witness whatever you say, whatever you learn, whatever you're saying. I was reading an article by this guy who's been a big Christian researcher. Uh, I forgot his last name. I know his first name, Doug. He was writing an article uh, about why do people not witness? And he was saying one of the reasons, he was saying the biggest reason, and we don't really even think about this reason, but it was crazy when he read. I thought it was so smart. He said people do not witness because they don't want to. They just don't want to. And I was like, yo, that's true. Like, whenever I don't witness, I just didn't, I don't want to do it. You're just like, not today. I'm going to get up in here and I need to get out. You know, I got to go catch, catch this movie. We just don't want to. And then you say, well, why don't people want to? And then he would say, well, a lot of times people, they don't care. And what I want to say about don't care, not on the guilt sense, but our lives Nowadays can be set up so well that we really do not have to deal with people who we don't want to deal with. You can block them on social media. You can keep things away from yourself. You have something with you that you can totally isolate yourself. So it's not that like we're these horrible people. It's just that our lives are set up for us to not engage, which then causes us to not really care. And when we don't care, we don't really want to do stuff. You see, this woman was changed. She cared. So she wanted to do something about it. Jesus came because he cared and he wanted to do something about it. Jesus crushed social norms. He engaged the culture. That's how he set up his life. He set up even where he walked to be where he would engage with the culture. You know, if you got Christian this, Christian this, Christian this, Christian this, you might want to eliminate a couple of those and say, let me go to this coffee shop. Or let me go to this place. You have to engage the culture. I know that personally, whenever we uh, put our kids in a sports league, we try to make sure it's not a sports league that's uh, like a church-based one. We just, our kids playing the Roberto Clemente, Humble, Humble Park, Little League, and we just play there. Because we get to engage all those people. Do you know if you volunteer to coach, they give you everyone's name and phone number and email? Whenever you have a party or whatever, you can invite them. You can say, hey, all our kids were hanging out this summer. Let's go hang out again. And people come. It's pretty amazing. I've taken a group of kids that we were a basketball team with, and I've had them come to Chase and hang out. So you can use that. So you have to engage the culture. What else? Jesus used concrete external conversation. He changed it. He learned how to move the conversation into meaningful things. We got to do that. We can't just keep talking about whatever. We need to learn that we are serious about our relationship with God. We want to get to that at some point in the conversation. Jesus taught about true worship. He didn't let this woman get away satisfied with just having a nice spiritual conversation. He didn't want to just visit. I was speaking to, uh, I went to a conference where there was this guy, he went around with, a Christian, and he was a flat-out atheist, but they agreed to write a book together where he would take this atheist to all a bunch of churches around the United States and just get this atheist point of view. And this atheist was here, and I was sitting next to him. So I was just like, what's the most, what's the most craziest thing that you feel Christians do? He was like, I feel the craziest thing. This is what he said. 
He said he felt the craziest thing that Christians do is what he called drive-by evangelism. They kind of just spit stuff out at people, and then they go on. They leave. And I was like, yeah, that kind of is kind of weird. Like, it's super important, so we're going to spend five seconds on it, three minutes on it, and then we're going to go. And no, he was like, he was like, man, before I really, I really get ready to ask the questions, they out of there, or they cut it off. And so you see, Jesus is not just satisfied with a good conversation. He gets to the sin issue. He gets to the free gift. He gets to eternal life. Jesus reveals himself. And from the lady we get, the Samaritan woman, she displayed simple obedience. She heard something, she said it. Simple obedience. Not that it's simple, life is simple, but you hear something you said. She, she exhibited that. She told her story. She went back to her immediate context. Some people say, where do you kind of start? Well, you kind of, you can start with family, extended family. You start with your neighborhood. And then we know that through that, you can reach the ends of the earth. Sometimes there's a mission trip, and you can do that there as well. I'd like to end with a story. The story is called A Plea for Fishing by Daryl Robinson. This was written in 1995. I don't have time to explain it, but I think most of you all, if not anybody, everybody here will get it. If you don't, I'm always available to chat. It said, now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. There were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with hungry fish. Week after week, month after month, year after year, those who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means, defended fishing as an occupation, and declared that fishing is always to be a primary task of a fisherman. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing, for new and better definitions of fishing. They sponsored costly nationwide and worldwide conferences to discuss fishing and to promote fishing and hear about all the ways of fishing, such as the new fishing equipment, new fish calls, and whether any new bait had been discovered. These fishermen build large buildings called fishermen headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman, and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. Large, elaborate, expensive training centers were built whose primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. They only taught fishing with their doctorates in fishology. But the teachers did not fish. Year after year, after tedious training, many were graduated and were given fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters, which were filled with fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and sent to fish. But like the fishermen back home, they didn't fish either. Like the fishermen back home, they engaged in all kinds of other occupations. They built power plants to pump water for the fish, 
and tractors to plow new waterways. They made all kinds of equipment to travel here and there to look at fish, fish hatcheries. Some also said that they wanted to be part of the fishing party, but they felt called to furnish fishing equipment. Others felt their job was related to the fish in a good way, so the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors and how loving and kind they were was enough. After one big meeting on the necessity of fishing, one young fellow left the meeting and went fishing. The next day he reported that he had caught two outstanding fish. He was honored for his excellent catch and scheduled to visit all the big meetings possible to tell people how he did it. So he quit fishing in order to have time to tell all the other people about his experience as a fisherman. He was also placed on the board as a person having considerable experience. Now it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of them and their fishermen clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen yet never fished. They wondered about those who felt it was of little use to attend weekly meetings to talk about fishing. After all, were they not following the master who said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't catch fish were really not fishermen, no matter how much they claim to be. Yet it did sound correct. If a, is, a, if, is a person a fisherman if year after year they never catch a fish? Is one following if they aren't fishing? fishing? You see, guys, in order to be a witness, you have to witness. Some of y'all are like, that's a two-page story for that? Yes. Everyone wants a new definition of Christianity, but what we need is an old demonstration. Look to Jesus. Look to the Samaritan woman. And remember, a witness, to be called a witness, you have to witness. Have to. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your example. Thank you for your stories, Lord, that were real and teach us what we need to do. Lord, we pray that you would help us to develop as witnesses, that you would give us the opportunities, Lord, that we would get those divine appointments, that we would be prayerful, asking for you to lead us and to give us a heart for people who are so different than us in many ways. God, thank you for the opportunity to hear about you in action, and I pray that we would take those steps and those verbs and those actions uh, for ourselves, Lord. Pray that you would give us and guide us, the, give us the power and guidance to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.